when you find other people that can relate to you in some way, and, and again, we say every single grief journey is different. I have friends that have also lost a child and you just, you look at each other and you're like, yeah, uh-huh. I, you don't even have to say anything. It's just a nod of the head and a, a little bit of a, an extra hug. And you kind of get each other. Hey, family. I'm Coach Steph. And I'm Dr. Angela. We are the Grief Sisters. Together, we lost four family members in a seven-week time period. We know suffering. You may feel lonely, but you are not alone. Let's jump in. Hey family, it's Dr. Angela, and I'm here today with my co-host and sister, Coach Steph. Hi family. Today we are discussing some of the symptoms of the grieving process, and in particular, the emotions and experiences we have in what we call phase one of grief. Many of us have probably heard of the five stages of grief. They actually originated from an author and psychiatrist, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She wrote her book, on death and dying in 1969, the stages she mentioned, the five are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Mm -hmm. And as a matter of fact, this was one of the main things that kind of pops up on Google. Yeah. <laughs> popped up for me when I first started kind of researching grief, when I was just in my beginning journey of grief. And today there are many grief experts that don't necessarily agree completely with these stages anymore, or they've altered them in some way, don't really feel like they're the end-all be-all for everything in the grief mm -hmm. process. And Dr. Angela and I have intentionally categorized grief in phases one, two, three, rather than stages. Angela, will you kind of elaborate on that more? Yes. While we respect Dr. Kubler-Ross's work, and we realize that it's been incredibly helpful to a number of people over the years since she wrote it. Stages of grief that she describes actually clash and you don't really go from one to the next. It can seem when you talk about stages and even when we watch videos online about it, that it can seem like grief is linear and it's not. Grief is not just this thing happens and then this thing happens. And I don't know that she was trying to suggest that that's the way it is, but that's the way that it comes across. And also it's important for people to realize that you can be experiencing grieving seven years after the fact and be angry, <laughs> or then you find yourself, you know, sad or this or that. I think even when you accept what has happened, you can go back to the other things that she's talking about, you know, especially depression, anger. Both of those, I think, really stand out to me is like, even if you've accepted that this person has died, you can, you know, experience those emotions again. And I think we just want to be clear that grief evolves and that every phase in grief can include both difficult and warm emotions. That's the other thing that I see that's sort of missing from the stages of grief is that there's a lack of, of recognition that sometimes grieving is laughing. Sometimes it's joy. Sometimes it's recalling how much this person meant to you and moments you had with them that really filled you with joy or moments with your pet, you know, because they're different kinds of grief that we want to tackle in this podcast. 
whether you have experienced the grief of a chronic illness diagnosis, terminal disease diagnosis, you know, your body's just different than it was previously, you know, shifts in your body, divorce, changes in relationships, a breakup, or then the loss of a loved one, a beloved pet. We feel like that the stages of grief are not necessarily the most helpful way to talk about the grieving process, but instead we feel like phases of grief talk about how grief shifts over time. For sure. Today we're focusing on that phase one part. I think theoretically we could say anywhere from six months to a year. It could last longer. It could be shorter. It could depend on the type of grief that you're dealing with right yeah. now. Yeah. I mean, if, if it was the grief of a loss of a job and then you then you got your dream job because you were fired from the job you hated anyway, like that grief maybe isn't going to last as long. But nevertheless, those shocking feelings and difficult feelings can be there. For me, grief, the only thing that I can really equate it is definitely pure shock. And in that very, very first week or two or 10, that imagining feeling that shock over and over and over again for various reasons. And yeah, right. So I just want to, I think that that for us is the defining factor of phase one is shock. <laughs> yes. That you like, oh my goodness, this thing has happened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's a really good way of putting it because for those first weeks and months. And in my first weeks and months after losing Mason, my son, who was 22 and died of a sudden cardiac arrest unexpectedly. And then very soon after we lost our dad. And then I lost grandpa Bill right after that as well. In such a short time, I felt just uncontrollable sorrow. I mean, the tears just did not go away. And I remember at one of my very best friends, Kathleen, who basically was at my door and at my side from the moment she found out a couple of days in, she showed up with this big box of tissue boxes, like five or six. And she just started angrily like walking around the house, plopping tissue boxes around and then walked over to me. And apparently I had a roll of toilet paper under my arm and I'd been carrying it around for days and she <laughs> ripped it out of my arm and shoved this box of tissue. And she said, now, now I can move on <laughs> like for her just realizing those. I mean, so, like we've talked about that. The tears are just they just fall uncontrollably. And I had difficulty sleeping, but I don't really remember that. You have that memory for me that, that, I, that I didn't sleep very well. My memory loss was very, very difficult in many ways. And feeling overwhelmed with the arrangements of having to fly to Utah to pick Mason up and sort out and sort through all those things. Thankfully, Steve, my husband, and my sis our sister and my mom were there having to worry about my teenage daughter, who was Mason's sister, who was a freshman in high school at the time. And just literally the inability to think straight, grasping at words and being on autopilot. Those are all things that we could spend an individual episode on each one, but those are all natural, normal things that anyone in, in phase one could be feeling at any moment or even simultaneously. Angela, what was your first weeks like? And in particular, how did you feel the shock initially? Yeah, I resonate with some of the things that you said, certainly. 
And I think it's important, listeners, if you've skipped ahead and just come right into this episode, well, welcome, family. We're glad you're here. In episode one of season one of, of this podcast, we talk about our own stories. We talk about the four family members that we had die in, in seven weeks a number of years ago. And so we're both speaking from our experience of, of those seven, the weeks following those those weeks of hell. Like, what did it feel like to be in phase one? And for me, shock. Well, and I just, you know, for, for you, Steph, I feel like it just, the toilet paper is so emblematic of the fact that just you were so in shock that it's like you didn't even realize that there was, you know, you didn't, there was no care in you that like what you used to dry your tears or to like, you know, blow your nose because you're just like, I'm just a grieving mom. And this was, I mean, so I probably didn't even dawn on you that you had toilet paper under your arm, you know, you're no, no. I mean, well, that's, that's why like, she kind of brought me back into reality and yeah, moment, you know, and, and, and her own like frustration of just like trying to fix things. And for her, like that fixed it for that moment. And it was a win for her to, to change out my toilet paper <laughs> with some soft, nice tissue that yeah. my nose probably so desperately Appreciate needed. That. Yeah. And that's a good friend. So I, I, I resonate with the constant tears. Like when I think back to my shock and just like my experience of those deaths and then the weeks following it, it was like, I cannot stop crying. It does. It just flows. It's just, it's, it's just going and going and going. And like, when I think that they're going to run out, they don't. I'm just, you know, I remember being kind of baffled. Like, how is it possible that I have this many tears ready <laughs> on like fresh drafts. You know what I mean? Yeah. I really went into in the first few weeks though, like my trauma response was and always has been just hold it together for others and fall, it, fall apart when you're alone. Mm. Do and avoid, like keep busy, do and keep busy. So that goes back to the busyness that I was talking about in the first episode of just like, my my sort of tendency in life is avoid and keep busy. And so it was even though I was crying a lot, I wasn't really thinking about the crying. You know, I wasn't really thinking about what had happened, especially during those weeks. I was the person trying to comfort other people, organize funeral services, make sure that everything what came together at these funerals, that people were properly celebrated, remembered, loved, you know what I mean? But it was after I got home that I turned inward and I just got lost in my feelings and my thoughts. And I, I remember like I was almost consumed by my pain, sorrow, anger, and fear in that first year. I really did. I, there were certain times when I thought like, I will never, ever feel differently than I feel ever again. I don't, I really, it was absolutely inconceivable to me that I would ever get up and go throughout a day without being full of sorrow, rage, or fear. It was like one of the three emotions and sometimes all in one day, all three of them. But so for me, it was like significant fear of more people dying in my life. Like I just, after you get those horrible phone calls, like all back to back, it was just like, I just kept waiting for the other shoe to drop. It was just like, who's gonna call me and text me next? Like who's dying next? It was, yeah. so, it was so hard, you know? And then I started thinking about my own death in a way that I'd never thought about it before. And I was just like, my own mortality was very, very evident to me. 
and then significant sorrow that life would never be the same, that I would never be the same. The recognition that my naivete about the goodness and the beauty of, of the world is gone. <laughs> yeah. I can never get it back, you know? And that was the same thing. I think following my divorce was just significant sorrow that my life would never be the same. I, yeah, that, that, was, that was a different kind of, you know, that was, that was grieving that. I was grieving the life that was, that would never be in all these circumstances. And then significant anger at different points in that first year um, in phase one for me. I've just, the first, in phase one for me probably lasted like a year and a half, actually. I had anger that, that the way that I had seen the world, like the world is good, the world, like God is good, people are good, you know, I just felt like so angry, like, no, it's not like that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, you just wait, people. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I wrote in The Gravity of Joy, I said, life is not joyful. Life is a long, it's a long walk toward death. Wow. That's so profound. I think it's important to mention that, you know, all of these feelings that, that we're mentioning previously, that they sort of come and go or they move in and out. You move in and out of them. They can come out of nowhere. We talk, we'll talk about triggers in another episode, but mm -hmm. you can be driving down the street and bam, out of nowhere, you can see the pizza joint where your teenage son was working and you remember picking him up after work and just, you know, those kinds of things hit you. It could be two years and you could still be feeling raw. You could still be feeling a great loss, even years and years after. And for some people, you know, for example, the second year could be harder than the first because that crazy shock is wearing off a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then like the, the realization that, wow, yes, this person is actually gone or this marriage is actually over or this for the cases this trauma this pet is gone forever that realization my body will never be the same yeah yes just hits you like a ton of bricks in a whole new way you know that gut punch wouldn't mm -hmm. you agree oh yeah yeah absolutely i feel like that you've given this metaphor of having a cement backpack huh? that you know particularly like after mason died and then, you know, definitely our dad's death and your grandpa Bill's death, like only compounded it. But like you immediately like got a cement backpack. Can you tell people about that? <laughs> sure. I use the sprays a lot with people and it, I feel like it resonates pretty well. I've, I've coached hundreds of women over the years in health and fitness and accountability pieces and and you find that so many people that struggle in those areas also have had a traumatic event. So I'll have women come up to me and, or at church or even say, Coach Steph, I've got my cement backpack on, but I'm getting stronger. And so oh, many of my friends and family and clients have heard me talk a lot about that. And I think that for me, feeling kind of like moving from phase one to phase two begins when you realize that that backpack is there. And it will be there forever, but maybe it's just a little bit lighter because you've come, you know, to realize that 
although it's going to be there, I am kind of moving through this a little bit. And so I never say that the backpack gets emptied. As a matter of fact, as you mentioned, with compound grief and difficulties and life just being hard, sometimes another brick gets put in the backpack. Mm -hmm. And so we walk with it. It becomes part of us, but it's, it's behind us in a way. It's not in front of us. It's something that you begin to carry with a little bit more strength and power if you will allow yourself to look for and be open to joy and mm-hmm. and move through grief rather than just try to slide by it because that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow, that's a powerful metaphor. It's really helpful. I definitely feel similarly, you know, I mean, I, I really, I think that I definitely put on my own cement backpack and that it's, you know, it is, it's always there. And, you know, some days it feels heavier than others, even almost six years later. At the same time, like, I feel that I've learned how to ask other people to help me to walk with me as I carry this and that makes it like you carry it differently so maybe you know it's like so it's not that I ever put it down or like entirely take it off right that I find other way like new ways of carrying it Mm -hmm. yeah so I'm just able but you're and you're just walking forward like I'm not sitting down with it like I'm I'm you know that's the yeah the important thing that I'm hearing you say is that we keep walking forward with it No, I, yeah, I love what you're saying because, you know, when you do have a heavy backpack in real life, say you're hiking or sometimes you take it off and you carry it in front of you or you move it to the front of your body or you're, you're going up a heavy hill and you're afraid the backpack's going to pull you back. So you have to adjust it to one hip or another, or maybe you even give it to someone else for a little bit and then they give it back to you when you're ready and strong enough to take it. And that makes that makes me emotional to think about that because it it's something that sometimes when you're deep in grief as we were as I was not realizing my husband's carrying a backpack too and so is my daughter and so is my sisters you know and other people are you know could be in a place where they're already carrying a backpack and something else happens to them. Mm -hmm. And so now they're carrying two or the load just got heavier because the backpack just got filled up again. Mm -hmm. I don't think that I'm very good at giving the backpack to someone else and letting them carry it. (laughs) No, no, I don't. I I don't know that I've done that at all very well in the last almost six years. Yeah. But I think for me, it was sitting in a room with other women you know, that I wrote, I write about this in the gravity of joy. Like I became a volunteer chaplain at a women's maximum security prison with a bunch of women, like everyone had a backpack there. And there was something about sitting in a circle with them every Wednesday night for a year, mm-hmm. like that helped me to realize I wasn't the only one like carrying something. Yeah. 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 And that, 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 that was like the very big difference for me. Yeah. It's sure. Like, yeah, that you're well, saying to about our family. Totally. And I think like you just had something, I just kind of a light bulb went off in my head as you're talking that sometimes because we are in the phase of our 
our grief process where we want to help other people, even though our our journey is far from done. But when you do sit and hold space with someone that also has a backpack and they're telling your their story to you, you maybe for a second are empathizing with them so much that you forget you're wearing yours. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like you're so empathetic to their to their grief and their and you know how it is to be in that spot that maybe they're in that you're not quite in there that deep anymore. Yeah, because I think maybe you're you're focused on something else, right? So it's like when you're hiking with somebody and both of us love to hike. We love both are like fitness people. We really love to to work out, to de-stress and all that kind of stuff. And so when you're hiking with somebody else, a, a mountain doesn't feel as tall or as hard as when you're alone. Or if you're alone and like caught up in music, it also helps or into a podcast, you know. So maybe there's something about when you're sitting with someone else who also has a cement backpack because they've also been through hell and back. You're like, oh, you're so focused on the connection you all have and the shared lament and the compassion, you know, and the empathy that you're not thinking about, you know. So similarly, like when you're walking up a mountain, you're not thinking about how high it is you know, about like the elevation and how you can't breathe or how, you know what I mean? You're thinking about that connection, the conversation you're having or the music you're listening to or something like that. Sure. Even like you're carrying it together. Yeah. You know, it becomes a joint, a a joint thing. Like I can't carry in an entire couch by myself, but if someone helps me, I can do that, you know, and Mm -hmm. you become stronger by, by working through it together. So I love that too. Well, let's take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a bit about how Steph and I navigated phase one. Sounds good. Hey, family, this is Coach Steph, and we want you to know that we appreciate you. If you wouldn't mind, and especially if you found our podcast helpful, please follow, rate, and or officially subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you listen to us. This helps us grow and gets the word out to more listeners who really and truly need us. You can also consider supporting us even further by pressing the support button in our Anchor podcast link found in the show notes. Even $1 a month is helpful for us to continue to bring amazing guests and content to your ears. Thank you so much for listening. If you have experienced loss of any kind, you may be feeling overwhelmed and stuck. We get it. That's why we created Rise. It is an engaging five-step journey that you can take at your own pace that will help you get on the road toward healing. It comes with videos and a companion guide and easy actions you can try each day to help you to find relief. To join the Rise journey, head to thegriefsisters.com or check out the link in today's show notes. In this next part of this episode, we really want to talk about how we navigated phase one. We talked about some of the symptoms of phase one of grief that we experienced personally each of us having some things that we um, that were very similar for us and some that were different for us. And this is, I guess, a good moment for us to highlight that grief is messy and it looks different for every single person. And so while the defining factor of phase one might be shock, 
like, holy moly, this is my life now. I cannot believe it. You know, I cannot believe that this has happened. How we respond to that shock, how we deal with it, the things that happen in us as we're navigating that shock can can look different. And so whether you resonate with with things that, that Coach Steph and I were saying or not, just know that if you have just experienced the shock of grief, whatever way that you're trying to get out of bed every day, the fact that you're just like listening to this, we see you, we lament with you. I think that this is a good time to have a you know, a little bit of a discussion on that feeling of like one step forward, two steps back or, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. three steps, right? <laughs> or yeah. four, because, you know, when you're, when you're deep in that grief and we have many, many discussions that first year or two about just like, when is this going to end and what is this going to look like for us in the future? And am I ever really going to be happy again? Mm-hmm. Sometimes just when you get that glimpse of something that you are a little bit joyful about your own emotions take over and you say wait a second I'm not allowed to be happy again or someone says something to you that makes you feel bad or guilty or someone expects you to be over it after a year how do you feel about the one step forward two steps back scenario Yeah, I think that that's a good way of putting it. That's how it is for the healing process is is like that. It's, you know, one moment you feel like, oh, wow, I'm able to actually laugh again. Like you, I remember in in the in phase one of grief, I mean, there will be moments where you're laughing and you think you're laughing at a TV show or something that your kid did or somebody else's kid did, or you're laughing at a memory that you have of something related to your grief. And you're like, oh, wait whoa, I'm not allowed to be a laughing person, then that sometimes can send you into a spiral of like guilt or shame or regret, you know? And so then you can feel like, man, I just made two leaps forward because I was laughing. And then I just took six steps back because I like shame spiraled afterward. (laughs) So that's what both the grieving process and the healing process are all tangled up together. And it's, it's not clean. You know, it's true. And and also, I think that what compounds that difficulty to move forward is that most of the time we're just going through the grief and also at the same time struggling because we have these day-to-day have-tos that we must do. Not everyone is lucky enough to take time off of work. I was listening to a podcast a few weeks ago and and someone had just started a new job and they lost their mom and they were expected to be back in three days. Mm-hmm. And if you're in the middle of getting your nursing degree or high school or whatever the case is, maybe like you can't take time off. Like school doesn't wait for you. You know, the right. the assignments keep coming in. You have family responsibilities that or friendship responsibilities or you have a pet that you need to take care of. And if you're already in crisis and another crisis happens, or you've just, you know, fallen into a new crisis or a grief journey and have sudden loss or trauma, that can all be compounded. And, and so to even be able to come up for air because you have all these other responsibilities so sometimes really hard so it's not unexpected that someone kind of pushes their grief aside just out of 
you know, their own sanity and their own necessity to have a little bit of brain power to get the main things done. Mm-hmm. And I kind of remember this analogy that I used, and you've probably heard me, is, you know, just feeling like you're sitting at a train station and the train is going by and you're just watching life go by at a fast speed and you're just sitting there completely frozen and wondering how is life going on when this is happening? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, I felt that big time. And yeah, I mean, I remember walking to class to teach because I was one of those people. And I think you were one of those people too. Like you, you we both were, were a middle school teacher at the time of Mason's dad's death and grand, your grandpa Bill's death. Like, and I was right after my four weeks of hell, like I was a professor at Yale. And so I had undergraduates, I had a class I had to teach. And so I, mean, I, I, I led, uh, I did like the officiated dad's uh, funeral on a Tuesday and I led a retreat that Saturday, the following Saturday for other people. It was, you know, just life keeps going, especially when you have compound grief, when you have, you know, and then after my divorce, it was like, I still have to pay bills. I still have to go to work. I still have to, you know, do things like I have to be a person. And, you know, I think there are times when you just want like months in to be like, and that, well, that's the other thing is that sometimes the grief really, really hits you like six or eight months in. And so people may not understand like why you're off that day. You know, why are you crying in the middle of this work meeting? Mm-hmm. You know, because you, they don't, because they're not expecting that it's going to be eight months later. They're like, well, if it was the week after your dad's death, maybe or after your divorce, I'd maybe be crying in this work meeting, you know, but really grief hits you a lot later sometimes. Yeah. You know, there's just, yeah. there's certain days that are just particularly difficult. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I think for me in phase one, I mean, I was wondering like, uh, Steph, do you feel like this is a good time to talk through some of the tangible things that we feel like helped us navigate phase one? Oh, I'd love to. Okay. I think that in the, the initial shock, so we're going to talk about the ring theory of grief with Molly M. Galbraith in a couple of episodes. It's so great, so important. She's going to talk about how the people closest to someone who die are the people that need to be really well taken care of. And I absolutely get that and understand that. I think for me, the the compound grief that I experienced, uh, there was a little bit of distance for like my family member who died by suicide. I was like a couple circles out, but it totally shattered my my life. And I was, because I was like so present during the week of planning everything for their funeral service and all this kind of stuff. And for reasons I can't get into right this second, just felt very, very shattered by that. And then Mason, you know, but I'm not like at the center there. You were stuffed, you know, there were other people that needed to be taken care of more than me. And then dad, like I wasn't, you know, didn't live in the same city with him at the time. Anyways, for whatever reason, like there was no meal train set up for me. That's what I'm trying to say. It's my very long way of saying no one set up a meal train. And, and there might be people listening out there that like no one set up a meal train for you and brought you meals. Uh, and maybe we just need to ask for it. I wish that I had, because the thing is, I have a lot of really amazing friends and at the time, incredible colleagues at Yale who would have done this for me. Right. But I think that they just like no one sort of thought of it. And I don't know why. I guess like that's what I was just talking through is like, is it because I like seemed distant from some of these? Like it wasn't like 
my child that died? Is it because of that or something? But I had a lot of people that I could have asked. So I wish personally that I had asked for people to do some basic things to help me. I wish that I had asked for a meal train from people who loved me and would have done that for me. I wish that I had asked. And I will say that my friends, Sarah and Ronnie, brought a meal. And that was like right after my dad died, like had a, a beautiful meal with us and like really loved on us. I just wish I had asked for more people to do that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I wish I had hired a house cleaner for a little bit to help clean my house uh, because it's just like one of those basic things that I could have afforded at the time. And I not forever. Like I, I don't, you know, I'm not someone who like needs someone to clean my house all the time. But everyone's different. But for me, like, I wish I had done, I wish I had taken some basic tasks in my life and given them away. Um, then I would just want to invite least listeners, like if people are offering you basic things, meal, like a meal train, the, like they're saying, oh, we'll do your laundry. We'll come clean your house. Mm -hmm. Let them. Yes. Say yes. Say yes. Say yes. I think that that this brings up a good point because oftentimes, like for me, obviously I, I didn't leave town and stuff a lot like you did. That was probably part of the reason why the meal train and stuff didn't happen for you because it was a distant thing. For me, everybody's here in Albuquerque. This is where Mason grew up. I did have people offer to bring meals and we were kind of like, we're fine. And I had people showing up with food and I wasn't eating it. So I could have cared less. But what I realized later on is that a lot of people who visited me they ate the meals. They ate the food. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and I, I had a, a really amazing friend who showed up at one point and saw that we had quite a bit of food at our house that we weren't even eating and, <laughs> and that was going to go bad. And so she left and came back with Tupperware and Ziploc bags and she just packed it all up and put it in the freezer for us. And so that sort of thing is so beautiful. And like just being concretely asking somebody to come do that for you. Hey, do you mind helping me take these meals that people have given to me and helping me preserve them? Yeah. Like I yeah. love that idea too. And I will say that after my divorce, one of the most beautiful things, gosh, I could just like, it, it makes me tear up just to think about it. Oh man. Wow. My friends, Jake and Sarah are just dear, dear, dear to me. And they lived three blocks from me. And Jake texted me a few weeks after my divorce, like right when the new semester started at Baylor. We have family dinner like Monday through Wednesday night. And you, you teach, right? And late in the in the afternoon or evening, a couple times a week, right? Is that right? And I'm like, I text him back. Like, yeah, I'm teaching on Monday and Tuesday evenings. And he was like, which one are you coming to our house every week to eat dinner after your class? Oh. And I was just like, oh, like I chose Tuesdays, you know? Yeah. And I was just like, I'm going to, I'm going to be there. And he was just like, or Mondays, I chose Mondays, but every single week I got to go to their house and have this family dinner with them. And I just felt so much less alone in what I was going through, you know? And it's hard. It's hard for some of us to say yes to stuff like that because we think like, oh, I don't really need it or I'll be fine or when any other sorts, but say yes. Yeah. Like if people invite you or if no one's inviting, invite yourself because people want to help. I think we think that they don't and they, they don't see our pain and don't care, but a lot of people just don't know what to do. 
And, right. And, you, and as, when you're in grace, you don't know what to ask for either. People say like, what do you, what do you need? Or let me know if you need anything. And I'm kind of like, I, I need to go to bed. <laughs> you know, I don't know <laughs> what I need, but we did have a church family that wanted to put us on a meal train and stuff. And, and I remembered a, a woman calling and they were calling Steve. They weren't really calling me. And she just said, do you need anything? And he's, I heard him say, I think we're fine. And then she started offering things and she said, well, do you have a lot of people at your house? Maybe you need a couple of cases of water. Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah, yeah. What? Wa- wa- okay. Yeah. Water. And then she said, you know, again, I heard him say, I think we're fine with food. And she must've said, what about breakfast burritos tomorrow morning? Yeah. And I heard him say, yeah, breakfast burritos. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think it's hard to know what to ask for. Hopefully there's people out there too that, you know, maybe has been through grief or if you're just listening because you want to support someone else who is in grief, that it can be as easy as somebody brought me. One day my neighbor said, what do you need? And I said, I need coffee creamer. I'm out of coffee creamer. Yeah. And people just keep showing up drinking my coffee and using my coffee creamer and it's gone and like left this huge you know care package on my porch and just said I got you see that's the sort of thing that can like elicit anger and grief you're like (laughs) just like my family members are gone so is my coffee creamer (laughs) that would be me I would be like the very dramatic person that would be like everyone's gone and so is my coffee creamer (laughs) right right but yeah no I love that and I think I guess what we're trying to say is if there's something that you need even if it's simple try to reach out and to ask and to see if a neighbor you know someone you go to church with or synagogue with someone you a friend a co-worker can help you out because I think you will be surprised by the the people who want to help you Especially, you know, after you've gone through something really difficult. And then two, like if you're listening and you want to support someone who's in grief, uh, sometimes the simplest things, it's just giving them three things and saying, can I do this for you, this or this, you know, that will just spark something in them. Oh, actually, yeah, you could do this for me. And it's usually the simplest things. The other thing that I think is important to highlight is just like allowing grief in during phase one. Yeah. For me, that meant finding a time every week to really allow myself to grieve openly and deeply so that I could keep going to work, paying my bills, doing the stuff I had to do. I was okay. I can't, you know, I started crying during this work meeting, but I need to also do A, B, and C today. And so I'm going to table this and I'm going to make a little note to myself and this thing that has been triggered in me, I'm going to address this on Sunday morning. For me, I found it very helpful to just like say Sundays from 9 a.m. to like three is my time to grieve. (laughs) That's what I did. Every Sunday, I just spent all Sunday morning grieving. And it was just like, that was my time to allow myself to very openly and very deeply grieve. And then for me, I think it's important that in a a time like that every week to create comfort for yourself. It could be a couch or a chair you love, maybe a special blanket that you use, this cushion that you sit on. Uh, You could have a special set of candles that you light. Every like, this is my grieving time. I'm going to light these candles 
I'm going to think about this thing that has happened in my life and I'm going to grieve it, you know, and then having some, maybe some coloring books around or paper that you can write letters to God or to a person or to yourself or draw pictures and stuff like that. So just creating a space where you can feel comfortable and, and openly grieve. You know, I, I did that quite often and I, I didn't intention, I wasn't as, as intentional as you were with creating a time and a space. I think that, you know, for me, I kept myself pretty busy and luckily I had 126 grade students that lit my day up <laughs> in such amazing, fun ways and were so supportive of me. They knew what had happened when I came back to work. I was lucky enough to have teachers leaving little notes in my mailbox every day. And I know that not everybody has that kind of support system at work. And so, first of all, if you didn't have that, I'm sorry that you didn't have that support system. You're allowed to say, I should have had that for sure. <laughs> but I would, I would really miss Mason and I would just put one of his sweatshirts on mm. and... Wow, that just that gets me every time, you know, and to spend some time. But I, he, I saved very few of his baby clothes and I know exactly where they are to this day. And every once in a while, I go into my closet and I find them and I refold them two or three times and mm -hmm. put my hands on them and mm -hmm. allow myself to really feel that. And for him, you know, at that age, I think I told you, Angela, that Mason had one of those salt lamps and we yeah. had salt lamps and and when we went to utah to to bring him home i i brought that home with me and uh, it's lit in my bedroom 24 7 it never goes off mm -hmm. i see it it's a memory you know and i think that that also for me podcast is you know another reason that we have this podcast is because they were so helpful and valuable for us, in particular me taking a walk and just listening to someone else's story and allowing myself to feel empathy for them and for myself, to give myself grace for not doing the things that I thought I was supposed to be doing. I had a friend who just, she had lost her dad three or four years before, and she got through that with yoga, and she just kept inviting me to yoga. And some days I wouldn't even answer her. And some days I would say yes and then forget. And some days I would go. And she just never stopped asking me. Mm. And yeah. that was so great. And I would, half the time it was hot yoga, I would just lay on the floor and cry the whole time. And I would just put, <laughs> put a towel over my head so that I didn't, you know, freak out people next to me. <laughs> but it, it was a great quiet space and with beautiful music. Don't be afraid to create those new habits and to allow yourself to feel that because what you're feeling is not just grief, but you're feeling love at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my my spiritual director, when I was talking to her about grieving, said to me that grief lives in the body. And that's why the book, The Body Keeps the Score, is so helpful after trauma, you know, realizing it's true, like grief lives in the body. And so she said, when in doubt, like do something for your body. Don't try to think your way out of grief and out of traumatic situations and crisis. Do something for your body. And so taking walks, I can understand why that was so helpful to you. It was really helpful to me, too. I would take long walks and cry all over the city of New Haven. 
Sometimes I took a walk and vented to other people. Sometimes I took a walk and, and vented to God. Sometimes I listened to music and I found that to be really soothing and helpful to me. And, and, and yet for me, both after those weeks of hell and then after my divorce, like breath work, stretching and yoga and guided meditations have been just life changing for me. Like I cannot stress enough how much like starting every day with a guided meditation and then with attending to my breath. And there's like all different kinds of breath attention stuff that you can do that you can find online. Yoga with Adrienne, it's free. She does these 30-day journeys to start every year that are so helpful in people's lives. And she teaches a lot of like breath work in her and then also just like stretching and taking care of your body and like really attending to how you're feeling on any given day and as you do the journey with her. And so moving your body in new ways or in ways that have always been comforting to you can be very, very good ways of working through grief. And then also like in that in those times of deep grieving, you know, sitting in silence can be good and just allowing the silence to calm you, to minister to you, to comfort you and then making a warm cup of something that you love, like tea that you love, just being like doing special things for yourself. I love a tea latte and I'll just, it's so simple. Like I'll just boil some almond coconut milk on the stove. And I'll make a brew, do it like a tea bag into hot water, let it brew for seven minutes or so, put in the warm milk and then add some honey to it and cinnamon. And it's like amazing. It's so delicious, you know? And, and then I think too, um, in addition to everything that also we're saying is just any way that you can find other people to relate to, whether it's in podcasts like ours, through books. And so like that it can be, it's very helpful to find other people who've gone through something similar as you to talk to. When you find other people that can relate to you in some way, and, and again, we say every single grief journey is different. I have friends that have also lost a child and you just, you look at each other and you're like, yeah, uh-huh. I, you don't even have to say anything. It's just a nod of the head and a, a little bit of a, an extra hug. And you kind of get each other. And and I have to really say, too, with, with COVID, the hard part has been people meeting. Maybe it's a good and a bad. People weren't able to meet in person. A lot of the grief resources that are out there in grief groups went to an online space. So maybe people had more of an opportunity to partake in that. But when you don't have that physical ability to physically see people, physically touch and hug people, that can be hard. One of my important stories for people is I went to a grief group pretty quickly after Mason had passed away. I'm one of those people who's like, yep, go to the doctor, get an antidepressant, find a grief group and maybe a sleeping pill. Like, let's do these things. <laughs> this, is, this is like what I as a coach would tell my, my client. Mm -hmm. And so I went to a group and man, it was not for me. I yeah. mean, I won't get into the details, but I walked out of there feeling not great. And definitely, wow, if this is what it is, this is not for me. Yeah, and so it wasn't necessarily a bad group. It just was not the style I was looking for. Luckily, I didn't give up and I was recommended another group by my tennis coach who actually I saw him the next day and he said, how, how are you? And I said, not very good. You know, I went to this Greek group last night and it just was terrible. And, and he said, well, you know, my parents do a grief group, right? 
And I said, no, I didn't. And he invited me and gave me their information. And I, I was very reluctant to go. I really, really had to force myself to go. But I'm so glad I did because that was one of the, the saviors I had to look forward to every week. And that was a space I could grieve and, and a space I could do a little grief homework because that's what I wanted and be around people that fed me and took care of me for a day. And <laughs> And where I could be the student and not the teacher. Don't give up is what I'm saying. <laughs> one group is not like another. And it might take a couple, just like a, a therapist, you know? Yeah. Don't give yeah. up on the first try. <laughs> yeah. That'd be super because, helpful. Yeah. Well, as we close today, we wanted to ask each other the question that we're always going to ask at the end of every episode to both our guests and to one another. What is one way that joy has found you recently? It's funny that you asked this because I just this morning booked a flight to visit one of my very best friends who moved to Florida. The same gal who brought me the boxes of tissue paper. Oh. Kathleen has moved to Florida and she's been begging me to come and visit. And so me and a couple of other of her girlfriends have picked a time next summer in early June to go and spend a few days on the beach together. And if you had asked me, and she would probably tell you, if you had asked me to do that two years ago, even maybe even a year ago, I would have said, nah, no, not ready. I had a hard time saying yes to things that would be super fun. And, and I'll put an asterisk there. And I also really struggled to this day with not being the downer person. Like you don't really want me there because I'm a mess and I talk about hard stuff and I don't want to be the downer where everybody's sad or Stephanie's sad. So a lot of times I said no because of that. Mm. And so I'm really excited about it and really happy. And, and it's great that I got to tell everyone how passionate Kathleen was about helping me in my early days and solving problems in my house mm. when I needed it so much. What about you? What is one way that joy has found you recently, Dr. Angela? Mm. I had the incredible joy of leading a joy retreat this past weekend. Yeah. For a church in Austin, outside of Austin. I actually live in Austin right now. I'm going to move to LA in, in the next few months, but I yeah, I was leading this joy retreat and Sunday in particular. Wow, 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 wow. You know, sometimes you pour into other people and it's just a pouring out. I mean, and that's just the nature of it. You know, you're, you're, it's a job, you're working, you're speaking, and that's what I do for a living. So it was like I was kind of pouring out. So I mean, sometimes I just pour out and then I come back home and then other people pour into me through books, through friendships, through family members, et cetera. But like in this, on this particular retreat, like people really poured back into my life. And so Sunday morning, multiple people came up to me. We had this long time of like healing prayer after. So I like spoke on Sunday morning. There were music and there was just like a long period of, of music and prayer. And people just came up to me and, and shared what they were thinking, what they were feeling, and then really encouraged me. It was so life-giving. I mean, somebody, one of the the guys who I talked to with said, I feel like we were playing Legos out of the same Lego box because <laughs> I feel like a lot of the words that you used were like directly meant for me, that God really spoke through you to me. 
and that I felt like you really saw my grief. You explained it in a way that felt very real and like you just like you did it, that, those sorts of conversations. So it was just like not only I just was very encouraged by people, but then also people just like poured back into my life and said such beautiful things and really helpful things. Because I had shared our story and stuff like that. And so it was just, it was awesome. I felt very connected to, to the people that I met and to the goodness and the beauty of the world. And that I totally rejoiced over that all the way home. Like I listened to music in my car and I was just like rejoicing. Like, oh my goodness, what an incredible weekend. I had like this spirit of just thankfulness all the way home. Wow, that's beautiful. Don't forget to head over to our website, thegriefsisters.com. We have a free gift for you. It's a five-day grief meditation audio track that helps you manage anxiety. It includes a 10-page printable journal that walks you through each of the five days and provides a way to help you track each day. You can also find another audio version of the grief meditation track on episode three of season one of our podcast. We are also currently working on a series of resources and small group opportunities that will be tackling various phases of grief. These breakthrough resources will help you take steps to find the motivation you need to move through grief at your own pace, but move forward nonetheless. So look for updates on our website for those launches soon. Also, please look for our Grief Sisters book club and support group on Facebook. And remember, it's a we don't care if you've read the book club. Join us anyway. All of the links will be available in the podcast descriptions. Thank you for joining us today, family. We are grateful to you and for you. Until next time, let's try to stay open to joy. Because seemingly, against all odds, no matter who you are or what your circumstances are, joy can always always find you.